listener production. You are listening to episode 101 of the Howie Games, part B, featuring world champion surfer Martin Potter. On we go. I'll bring you back to surfing and, and a world title tilt and, and stuff shortly, Potts. Um, but it, it's, the, it's the 80s. It's a time of excess. You're a young man finding your way in the world. Tell me about life out of the water on the world surf tour as a young man in in the 80s and was it excessive did the excess get you yeah 100 percent um think about it 16 17 18 you got a pocket full of money a plane ticket around the world and no one telling you what to do or how to do it you know no team managers sounds pretty good yeah right (laughs) it was the best years of my life mate um you know just all I, all I knew I had to do was be at that event to compete, you know, and whatever happened in between was up to me. So, I mean, that, that slowly changed, um, you know, obviously working out that you can only party so much and, and it's going to affect the way you surf, it's going to affect your headspace. Um, but, I mean, that didn't stop us. I mean, we had, we had a, a lot of fun. And as you, as you touched on earlier, there wasn't a whole lot of money in, involved in the sport. So, you know, the amount of butter we had for our bread wasn't, wasn't that much. So it was almost like because of the early dominance of the Mark Richards and Shane and that, you know, there was kind of like, it was kind of boring for everyone else because they just traded off all year and, and we just kind of, we just kind of made up the numbers there for a while. Um, so as soon as you get knocked out, it was straight to the pub and, you know, and I was too young, so they'd have to sneak me in and, you know, slide me a couple of beers off on the side, but it was fun. I mean, we, we you know, partied hard and we surfed harder, so... And I think that was part of it too, was to, to see who could stay up the latest and then still go down the next day and, and perform at a high level. And I think that was a constitution that I had to learn very quickly. Um, you know, when you're hanging out with guys like Simon and that, uh, you you got to learn to drink a pint really, really quickly and handle it. So, um, but, you know, that all slowed down once I, I, I sort of lost sight of what I was really doing. You know, I was there to, to win and that wasn't happening anymore. It was kind of like, oh... I need to change stuff up and, and that's when the training and, and my relationship with Tom Carroll came into play and he he basically showed me how to be a, a true professional from, you know, from in, inside and outside of the water. I've been lucky enough to feature Tom on this podcast. Yeah, um, wow. he's, he's a legend. There, oh, there is a man with a story to tell. Yeah. You mentioned right at the start of this chat that the way you were surfing wasn't being judged in the way it was being received on the beach. So... Now you tune into a surf comp and especially when it's at the ranch, et cetera, everything is done out of the water Yeah. Um, as opposed to being in the water. You were at the, at the forefront of aerial surfing in competition. So, so how did that come to pass and when did you first start doing airs in comps and how was it seen at that stage by the judges? Because it was way out of what was traditionally seen as good scoring surfing, I guess, is the best way to say it. Yeah, well, when you look at um, the era that I came into, um, you know, like I said, Mark Richard was dominating it. Um, in 1981, Simon Anderson won Bells Beach on that big that big day, uh, and then he won Narrabeen. So it was, it was all rail game, you know. It was all these big, powerful men, you know, the Danes, the Shawns, the Simons, you know, the, that you needed to match their surfing with the rail game. So the rail game for me was where it all started, obviously, but the minute I jumped on the twin fin, um, I all of a sudden went from doing f- 35 in the slow lane to doing 75 in the fast lane, you know what I mean? Hmm. It was 
It was like, oh, my God, look, all the speed that I've got here to... And then I found I was, you know, having to wipe it off to make my turn. So the one thing that, that I always loved doing was getting as much speed as I could and then do a flyaway kick out. I used to love kicking out of the back of the wave and just flying up into the air. And and then one day I did it, but the, I kind of mistimed it and the wave hit me at a weird angle and shoved me back out onto the face of the wave. So I was flying, instead of flying out of the back of the wave, I was flying back into the wave and I ate shit and I went, oh, my God, like what if I can do that and pull it off? So it was kind of almost like an accident um, that happened um, and then sort of kept trying and trying and obviously broke boards. I had a lot of injuries through that. My knees are completely stuffed because of airs but um yeah a lot of fun a lot of fun days to come with that so when did you land one and think right this is the future um 15 14 or 15 i was um i was landing them successfully at the bay of plenty just at home and then took them on tour and um got a lot of negative feedback from from the old guys you know saying that surfing's meant to be done on the water um and back then the judging criteria um because of i think it was the highest they could give you for a single maneuver was six points, and the and the aerial was considered one maneuver. Even even though you take off on a wave and you race down and you set up the bottom turn and you fly through, you hit the lip, you fly through the air, you transition down into the wave. There's more than one maneuver involved there, so they couldn't see past that, and they basically judged it as one maneuver. So if I'd do a ten foot air and land it, I'd get six points for it. So. <laughs> You know, the other guys would do two or three turns and get more points because they were surfing more traditionally, more towards the judging criteria. So it took a long time and, and I thought, what do I do? Do I change it? No, hell no. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. The crowd's loving it. I'm loving it. But my results weren't showing it, you know. Um, I reckon I lost two or three world titles by not conforming to the rules. Look at Potter. He is projecting down the line. Big floater aerial re-entry. That was a great creative maneuver from Martin Potter. So Martin's just feeling confident. You can see it in his surfing. He's totally relaxed. He's not making mistakes. And he's just very, very happy with that. Yeah, way. a little style there over the head. But you continue to not conform to the rules. Yep. Why? Why? Because that's surfing. I mean, I'd be, I'd be cheating the sport. I'd be cheating me. I'd be cheating the way I want to ride waves. You know, it's like you know you can do something but then you don't do it. You know, you take the easy way out. Like that, that wasn't in my vocabulary back then. I, I like to do it the hard way um, in every sense of the word, you know, and I learned at a young age to freaking handle it, like deal with it, you know, put, you know, get your chin up and go for it. Like no matter how much you get pulled down or beaten up or, you know, held under, you just come back and, and, and do it again as hard and as bad as you can. And finally, because of the, the crowd reaction, the magazines, you know, like I was, renowned as, a, as one of the best free surfers in the world, but not a competitor. Um, but that all changed when I learned how to put it all together and structure it and, and make that aerial manoeuvre functional within the system of surfing. We'll get to the world title year. Um, for those that aren't aware, just need to Google your name and all of a sudden this will pop up, this beast <laughs> of a man with a Big chest and long hair. Yeah. Um, I watched this morning Strange Desires. Oh, my God. So this is for those that jump on Potts' website and that's where I saw it. Um, it starts with you um, basically doing karaoke to yep. Run DMC and Aerosmith Walk This Way with Your Hair. It is, if you want to know and you weren't alive in the 80s what the 80s was, that was the <laughs> 80s. So what was, 
What was life like when, you know, at that stage you blokes were doing sort of 24, 25 events yep. ar- around the world. You had money in your pocket. You are a style icon. There were, ladies were chasing you. You, you, were, you were like the, you were the ultimate 80s Hellman Pots. Yeah, we thought we were rock stars, to be honest with you, Howie. Well, if you have a look at that <laughs> clip of Strange Designs, mate, you um, were a rock star. Uh, you know, um, you know, try, once, once uh, I mean, the 80s was in full swing. I think that was the biggest growth of the sport ever yep. was was through the 80s. I mean, the sport went through the roof. Companies were, you know, registering a couple of hundred million dollars a year in profits and all that kind of stuff. So that was the boom. I mean, the sport, we were having, we were going to contests and there was 100,000 people on the beach, you know. It was like standing room only. It was like we were we had kind of rock star status. You know, you go to Japan and you sit on the little podium and they introduce you and you stand up and the crowd cheers and then you walk down the red carpet like a, you're like a prize fighter walking down ready to do battle, you know, and it's like, we, we kind of thought we were rock stars, you know, and that, you know, the 80s was, um, it, it was an amazing time. Uh, it was a lot of evolution of surfboard. Um, the, the sport was changing quickly, you know, obviously the clothes that, that we were wearing. I mean, fluoro was right in and um, it, it was huge, you know, we, we were, but we were surfing shitty waves. Everywhere we went was bums on seats and that's, you know, the, the tour nowadays you're riding these big perfect waves. We, we you know, we were surfing crappy waves 90% of the time. You talked about the clothes and it, it, it was rumoured at the time that you had signed a million-dollar-plus deal with Gotcha. Yep. True story? True story, but a million dollars over five years. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so That's still a million dollars, still a million dollars in the 80s. In the 80s. So that was um, the second biggest contract. Uh, Tom Carroll signed the biggest deal straight off the bat um, and then Curran came in with some pretty amazing f- figures as well. But, um, you know, it was... With that money, though, you you got to pay for your travel, you got to pay for your accommodation, you got to pay for your living. I mean, and we, I, I didn't have a financial manager. I didn't have someone to to say, you know, invest in this or put your money here or buy a house. Or I was just on the I was just on the road and I was loving what I was doing and and I was living at large. I was I was going to bloody enjoy it, you know. You, I, I was it was almost like that thing of hey, I can't take it with me. So what do we do? Let's just have fun. Let's in, you know, and and so I did. I stayed in nice hotels and. Um, you know, if we'd get stuck at the airport, I'd get a limo instead of a taxi or, you know, it was like silly things, but, but that's part of the story and it's part of, you know, who I am and it's what made me into uh, the person I am today, you know. There's a quote attributed to you, Potts, I'm not sure I read it, but you're quoted as saying, you're only here for a short period of time and if you don't enjoy what you did, you would be a hopeless piece of shit. I think, I think this is what we're talking about. Yes, exactly. This is that period, I reckon. Yes, that was, uh, that was 89 I said that. Um, <laughs> and, you know, that's, I was, I was, uh, that came from the heart, you know. Um, maybe not the, the, the hopeless piece of shit part, but you, it's that thing of letting that wave go that I was talking to you about. Had I yes. let that wave go, that would have crushed me forever, you know. And so you, you, you see things in, in, in life that you want, go and get it. You know, don't let people tell you otherwise. Don't let people try and get you off track or push you into conforming to the way they want you to do it. But of that, do it your way because you only get one shot at this. I couldn't have gone back and got that wave again. I've served Pipeline after that wave about a thousand times and haven't come close to getting a wave like that. <laughs> so that was a wave of a lifetime. And had I let that wave go, I wanted to. Trust me, if there was no competition on, I would have let that wave go. But because I was in that moment of you've got to do this, I did it, and and you you know I didn't want to have that regret, and the same thing with living and enjoying my life. I don't want to have that regret. 
I want to I want to make sure every single box has been ticked. And at the end, I want to slide in with wrinkles and grey hair and and go, what a ride that was, you know. What What do your kids say when like they will have seen strange designs? I'm sure. <laughs> what, what What do they say about? Geez, Dad. Yeah, uh, Jack. Jack's kind of a bit of a bit of a rock star himself. Actually, he's a amazing singer. He's good on the guitar. He plays piano. He kind of loves it. Yeah, he loves it. But um, my daughter's a little bit embarrassed about it. <laughs> <laughs> so we get to 1989. And again, as I said, there's not a great deal of information about world titles at, at, at that stage in the world of surfing. But I did read that it was really light on detail, but it said all of a sudden prior to that season, you started training not just on your surfing, out of the water. Yep. So tell me about that. This was to, to get physically, mentally, spiritually strong? What, what was it? Um, I think it was just, you know when you do something and you don't give it 100%, you don't go yes. all the way and you kind of, and you don't accomplish your goal and you go, well, of course, I didn't give it everything I had. And mm-hmm. I think that's where I was at with when I started training. I felt like I was winning events, but I wasn't, I wasn't dominating like I wanted to. I wasn't getting that elusive world title. You know, I was coming close. I was top five, you know, constantly top five guys, but never really breaking into that that next step and, and that's winning. And Tom Carroll um, offered me to come and train with him and that, that was the turning point for me. Uh, we trained with a, a couple of Ironman, a guy called Craig Riddington and Guy Leach. Uh, Leachy, yeah. one of the great men. Exactly, what a legend that man is. So we did a lot, of, did a lot of training with those guys, very similar, you know, a lot of sand dunes, soft sand running, low impact stuff, a lot of bike riding, but then... Tom would go to the next level and he'd do aerobics and he would do, we'd try, like go boxing with Jeff Fennick. And um, so we, you know, basically I kind of got into that whole training thing. It was almost like a, a drug in a way where it made you feel better and better. And, and my surfing was getting stronger and faster. And I'm like, this is, this is what I was looking for, you know, it was that, that little thing that I didn't do. And the year I, the, my world title year, I ended up staying, instead of coming back to Australia, I stayed in Hawaii for an extra month and surfed my brains out. Um, and then went from there to California, and that's when the title for me started because I ended up winning that first event of the year. Um, and that was generally a, a very tough event for me as well because it was cold water and uh, the waves weren't that good. So you really had to suck it up and, and, and be ready for it. And, and my whole training, mental thing all clicked into gear. And when I got there, I just I just saw that what I had to do and went out and did it and, and smoked everyone. So that was kind of... The, the ball started rolling there for me. And it's a fantastic start for Martin to win the first contest uh, of the World Tour. It gives him uh, a great confidence boot for his quest for the world title, which I'm sure Martin would dearly love to win. Congratulations, Martin, on winning your seventh career victory in $10,000. I think I went um, four out of the first five uh, events that I won that year. Dominated the year. I think it's the biggest ever winning margin still compared to what, what Kelly's done. Yeah. I think I'm right saying I that. Think it, I think it's the only record that he doesn't have by the biggest margin, yeah. <laughs> and I, I think he would be annoyed by that as well. Oh, totally. It's the only thing I've got over him. So every time I see him, I'm going, how much did you win by? <laughs> but uh, he's, he's covered everything though. So did you temper your surfing? Did you conform at all? Or did the judging catch up to you and you were just doing what you were, had typically been doing? I think it was a little bit of both, uh, Howie. I think, okay. um, I, think I, I definitely slowed down a bit in 89. Um, I, my, six, my, my completion rate was higher. Um, when, when I did do an aerial, it, it was 
in the right place at the right time to make that manoeuvre look as part of the ride, not just setting up one wave to, to do just that one manoeuvre. I made sure I linked it all together and put it in place where it needed to be. And when I started doing that, the judges started sucking it up and I was getting nines and, you know, things started feeling easy. Um, Bells Beach, um, I didn't do one aerial that whole event and ended up winning it quite easily just by keeping the board in the water. Um, and so that was kind of a sign of things to come for me that year was, hey, don't give them their best if, the, if you don't need to give them their best. Save that little ace up the sleeve until you come up against Curran or Oki or Carol, you know, the guys you really needed against. You know, don't come out the first round and show them everything you've got, you know, keep those things. And if you don't have to do it, don't do it, you know. Once you get pushed, you know you can crank it up into that next gear that a lot of guys don't have. For those um, listening, they won't be able to see what I can see, which is some beautiful boards behind you and over your right shoulder, a world champion ASP trophy. What, what does that mean to you? <laughs> uh, what, do you? What did it mean to you after being the outlier to become the surfing champion of the world? Um, I think it was, you know, obviously it's the, the ultimate goal as a professional sportsman is to be the best at it, right? Whether it's, you know, tiddlywinks or checkers or long jump. I mean, it's to be the best at something is why I started surfing. You know, as soon as I started that, that, that very first wave, I remember riding, I just wanted to get better and better and better, you know. And then once I started competing, I just wanted to get better and better and better to be the best at it. So um, that's the combination of, of all the hard work that you put in, you know, and I think um, no one can take that away. You know, it's one of those things that, that's there forever and, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a trophy. I think it's more in here and it's more up here for me. Um, you know, that's just a symbol of it. Um, but what that doesn't show is the blood, sweat and hard work and tears and, sacrifice that, that goes along with it, you know, and without that, you're not going to get that. You know, you need to sacrifice, you need, to, you need hard work, you need to be uncomfortable, you know, you need to learn how to travel and live away from, you know, your family in a hotel room and, and be alone. And it's, it's quite a lonely sport, you know, especially for me back in the early days. Um, um, so, yeah, I mean, that's the symbol of the world title. But for me, it's, it's you know, it's, it's all up here and in here, you know. I'm sure it wasn't lonely the night you were crowned world champion. <laughs> no, that, was, um, that was a big party. <laughs> okay, t- again, rumoured, uh, rumoured. Yes. This is one of those urban legends. Yep. Rumoured in the 1989 uh, financial world to be a $15,000 party in one night. Yeah, that was just the room service bill, Howie. <laughs> right. So, what, what, tell me about the night. Was it just uh, all champagne and yeah, fun? Yeah, it was all champagne and fun. Um, I had my best friends around me, you know, guys I travelled with on tour. Um, had a few friends fly over from from Oz to come and hang out and, and party with us as well. But you know, it was I was I was going to make sure I never forgot that night. And if I had gone any harder, I probably would have not remembered it. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, yeah, it, it was one of the most expensive nights I've had ever. But it was definitely well worth it. Um, yeah, it was unreal. I mean, like I said, just surrounded by my closest friends and, and um, just partied till the sun came up. Did you pick up the bill? 100%. Good man. Yeah, Good I, man. I, I, uh, I picked up the bill and then I handed it over to my sponsor. <laughs> 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 and and we, had a lot of, we had a lot of negotiating to be done there to get that across the line, but eventually got it across the line because I said, look, I gi- I've given you your first world title. The, the least you can do is pay for my bill. But, yeah, they did anyway. 
another urban uh, story that I'm going to ask you about. Um, did you have a Porsche as a rental car and damage the Porsche? Uh, yes and yes. Um, did I have – I rented it from a place called 7-Eleven Rent-A-Car in uh, Newport Beach in California. Yes. And then two hours later completely wrote it off. Uh, I was very lucky to, to walk away from that one um, and that was another – sliding door moment in my life. Um, my driving became very sedate after that. Okay. Because uh, I thought I was six foot and bulletproof, you know, when you're, when you're a young kid, you know, you think you can get away with anything. And um, I spun the car out doing about 100 miles an hour and smashed it to pieces and I had no roof and no seatbelt on and lucky I didn't get thrown out of the car and rode it out. Um, didn't have one scratch on me um, and walked away from it. So... That was an expensive lesson. I had to pay for the car, but uh, most um, the thing that really I, I pulled my head in when it came to, to driving after that became a lot safer on the roads and, yeah, thank God. Well, you had to pay for the car, did you? Yeah, well, um, yeah, I paid because it, um, it was some weird thing that they didn't let us take insurance out on it um, right. because we're from what another country. I was about 10 grand. Oh, gee, um, that's a fair hit. yeah. But it was a it was a nine eleven brand new, so I completely rode it off, snapped both the axles. So when I hit the sidewalk, the, the the wheels folded underneath the car instead of flipping me over. So everything just the whole car was stuffed. There was no repairing it. You know when the when the tow truck driver came, he's uh he said, oh that's going to the scrapyard, and I just went, oh no, like. <laughs> and then the cops came and um, they tried to sort of work out the logistics of the accident. Luckily, there was no other one involved except me. And um, he said, how fast were you going? I said, oh, about 60 miles an hour. And he's like, really, son? And so he started <laughs> He started walking where the skid mark started and he got about yep. 200, 200 yards up the road. He goes, how fast were you going, son? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he reckoned I was doing about 105, 110 miles an hour. So very lucky to walk away with that one. Glad you did. Potts, the one thing I've learned from doing this podcast is that anyone that has achieved anything in the world of sport has had some massive highs but some pretty tough times along the way yep. and that often shapes the person. So someone listening to this would think, righto, he's won the world title in 1989. How old were you then? I was 24. Righto. He's at the peak of his powers. He could well go on to dominate the sport. And you did have a lot of success in the sport after that. But you hit various pitfalls in surfing, uh, in business along the way. Yep. How would you look back and explain that time to me? Um, yeah, what I mean, obviously, obviously after the world title, I tried to start a, a clothing brand uh, and surfboards, um, which kind of met a lot of resistance from, from the other companies. Um, the Potts brand was quite funky and quirky, and I think it, it was doing well to a point, and then the Quicksilvers and the Billabongs and the Rip Curls said no more of that. Um, so I lost a lot of um, shelf space in shops so people weren't stocking the product because the big wigs were controlling it. Um, so I lost a lot of money through that. But, you know, again, I mean, I, I don't regret like a it. a lot of money or...? About 100 grand. Okay, that's enough, yeah. Back that's then enough. it's enough, you know. Um, yeah. And it's, you kind of think, well, maybe I shouldn't have done that. And you think, well, no, bugger it. I gave it a go. Like, yep. and it was, and it could have been, it, it, it could have been if, if they had just given me a little, a little bit of my space, I reckon it, it would still be going now as a, as a, a, a cool little brand, you know. Uh, it was never going to be a Quicksilver Billabong or Rip Curl, but it was going to be something that 
someone else could go and buy that was kind of cool. Um, it wasn't the stock standard stuff that your dad's wearing. You know, kids will rather wear a Pots T-shirt than a, than a Quicksilver T-shirt because dad wears Quicksilver. So that was kind of what I was looking at. Um, you know, obviously management, I picked the wrong manager. Um, I wasn't vigilant enough in keeping an eye on my own finances, so, you, you know, too trusting. So all these lessons that you learn along the way, um, you know, turn you into the human you are. Um, well, did you lose money along the way with a, with a manager? Yeah, just tax-wise. I mean, he didn't pay taxes for me for five years, so I got audited and then got smashed by the tax bill. So um, he didn't rip me off directly, but he screwed up for me directly. Um, what so was the tax bill? It was, oh, God, don't even want to talk about it. It's about 300 grand, but... Um, but we negotiated. We negotiated down, and I, I got a, I got a, a little bit of reprieve on it. So, I'm on first name basis with a tax man, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> He's been a big part of my life ever since I turned pro. Let me tell you. <laughs> right, right, right. There, there, there's also um, the famous story, and I only came across it by because you went and surfed again um, in in uh, against him in the historical heats, which I think are fantastic pronunciation of his surname. Is it Brad Gerlach? Brad Gerlach, yeah, Gerlach. But so you don't hear very often when you're reading about World Surf Tour events about potential punch-ups <laughs> in the water pots, but yeah. your name is at the forefront in that one. Yes, yes. Um, another thing that maybe I'm not that proud of, but again, you know, am I going to let this guy push me around? Hell no. Um what was happening? Well, we, we started the heat off. Um, we never really liked each other. So there was a lot of trash talking during, during our heats. Every time we surfed against each other, he'd fall off. Um, I'd, I'd have a bit of a snicker and go, geez, that was amazing. And then, and then he'd turn around and go, F you, and I'd go, F you. And so we'd, we'd just, like, we'd have this competitive banter and eventually found out this guy was so similar to me. We're both so alike that we're like bulls at a gate, you know, and that's kind of why it happened. So... Quarterfinals in Japan, the heat starts. It's one of the biggest events of the year, the biggest prize purse that we've got, 50 grand for first place. That was huge back then because we were getting between five and ten maybe for first place. So 50 grand. So, I mean, everyone's ears are back and, like, this is everyone's taking this one really serious because it's 50 grand. So I get into the quarterfinals against Brad Gerlach and, and, and it's kind of on already. Like, we're trash-talking to each other and in the water and stuff and... Um, he paddles for this wave and misses it and I catch it and I drop an 8.5 on it and I'll paddle back out and I go, thanks for that one, mate. That was an eight, a perfect start for me. And he's, and he's like getting angry. And so I start paddling out because back then you had to go around the priority board to get priority. So he's pad- I paddle out to get priority. He paddles for a wave and misses it again. And then that means I come back into the lineup and I've got complete control now. So I've got not only the best start, but now I can control his, his movement. So we start hassling each other and I'm pushing him out of the way and I finally get my next wave and drop another eight-plus ride. So now he's like pretty much needs a massive comeback. So I'm paddling back out laughing and he, I just see him snap and then I went, it's on. And we just paddled straight at each other and went, bang! It was like head-on collision. And then there was, there was fists and there was boards stick pointing and I had a big hole in my bottom of my board like that and, and I, I remember sticking my board through, through his board as well. Um, and then the commentator called the heat off and basically told us both to come in because we were fighting, we weren't surfing. And we got to the beach and I thought that it was going to be on, so I stuck my board in the sand, put my hands up, he did the same thing, and then we looked around and we were in a circle of cameras and we thought, oh, well, this isn't good for the sport, you know, so we backed <laughs> off. 
we backed off and uh, they basically reviewed the footage and decided that he had um, instigated it so he got disqualified. And that was that. It was, um, you know, it was a moment we're both not that proud of, but it was, again, that, that moment where you, hey, I'm, I'm not going to let you push, push me around. Like, this is, this is my deal, not yours, you know. And so we both had that feeling and, yeah, we were, we were both bulls at the gate and uh, it would have been an interesting fight though, that's for sure. Why'd you retire? Uh, just because I didn't have the eye of the tiger anymore, you know. I didn't have that fire that burnt, that desire to, to want to keep winning and doing it, you know. Um, was, it, was it a difficult, often the most difficult part of an athlete's life seems to be retirement? Yeah, it's huge. Um, How it, was it for you? Oh, it was, it was, it felt like the right thing to do. Um, maybe I could have waited a few more years. But then again, like, you know, I got to spend time with my daughter. Uh, my first daughter, Maddie, was born around the same time as I retired. Maybe that was kind of helped that decision a little bit more. Um, didn't want to be away and, and miss out on all that, that, that early part of her life. Um, but, yeah, I just felt like I wasn't enjoying it like I used to, you know. I felt like I wasn't, you know, the, the, the wins weren't as sweet, you know, the losses were harder. Um, I felt like I wasn't sort of maybe putting enough into it to continue I wasn't doing it justice, you know, and I think I retired number 10 in the world, which which isn't bad. I still won an event that last year on tour, but, um, you know, I just felt like I'd lost that, that, that flame, that fire that burns in the, in the belly, you know. Was it a difficult transition to become a non-athlete? Huge. Um, you know, when it's, when it's all you've known, when it's all you've done your whole life, um, I don't know how to do anything else. You know, at that stage I didn't. You know, I wasn't qualified in anything else but surfing. Um, so what am I going to do now? You know, and that was like, there was a two year period there where it was, yeah, it was pretty, uh, pretty interesting. Started doing interesting. Well, just, well, financially you start struggling because your sponsors are like, okay, well, you're not traveling anymore. So that gets all cut in half and cut here and cut there. And then you're like, shit, what do I do now? And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, if I got in any advice to, to guys at retirement, make sure you've got something to fall back on, but. I didn't, you know, so I had to work it out from, from the beginning. It was almost like starting from scratch again, you know. Started working with a couple of companies, worked with Arnett Sunglasses, um, and then started doing a little bit of coaching. Um, and then this whole commentary thing fell into place. A quick break from POTS. Last week's episode featured the 2013 Masters winner, Adam Scott. And thank you so much for all the love towards it on social media at MarkHoward03. I guarantee goosebumps. I hope you got some. All of a sudden, Adam Scott out of South Australia and Queensland has the opportunity to do something that no Australian has ever done. What are you talking about with Stevie? How on earth are you clearing your mind, Scotty, at this stage? Yeah, you... I instantly felt the, this, okay, now I have a putt to win a major and the Masters. It, you can't <laughs> uh, trick yourself into not knowing that at that stage. So I went about the routine. Steve went about his routine and we met behind the ball. And I'd always tell him what I thought first and then ask him if he sees something different. And I said, I see it a cut right to left. And he said, Scotty, it's two cups right to left, which oh. is a big difference. It's not like, it's not like, yeah, I see it just a little bit more than that. It's like twice as much. And he said, I see it two cups right to left. This part breaks a lot. I said, 
Have you seen this pup ever in your career here? And I'll cast like quick flashback over 37 years or something for me, mate. You need to be sure. <laughs> uh, I didn't say it like that, but I was like, have you seen this pup before? And he said, Scotty, it breaks a lot. It is two cups right to left. And that's it. And I said, okay, it's two cups right to left. And I hit the part and maybe with a little adrenaline and everything, I hit it a bit firmer than I normally would. But he was dead set right on. It was two cups because it went in the left side of the hole. Uh, it's an incredible moment to make a call like that. You know, that's the confidence he had in his abilities and the confidence he then in his delivery as well to me to go, okay, Steve, it's two cups. You know, I read it one cup. So it was a huge call. That's Adam Scott on last week's episode of the show. Time to get back to Martin Potter. When did you first commentate? Uh, first one was in was a Quicksilver event, and it was in Fiji. It was a women's event, and it was audio only. <laughs> wow! So, so there was no vision, so we had to paint the picture with our words, and and it was pretty tough. It was me and a guy called John Shimuka, and we did the whole day just two of us. Um, I think it was a two or three day event, but then um, the Quicksilver Pro on the Gold Coast was my first, um, you know, proper webcast. Um, and it was fairly loose, but we had a guy called Mark Warren who was a, a former professional surfer, bronze dozzy. Um, he was a stickler for perfection. So everything we did, he, he got the best cameraman, he got the best this, he got the best that, and so he put all the best people in the best places and we had hands down the best production, you know, um, and that's kind of how it all sort of unfolded. What do you reckon the key to sports commentary is because I love it when I get people that commentate on sport yeah. on, on this show because it's obviously something I'm passionate yeah, about. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and I love listening to you and, and the guys on the on the tour um, and you've done some revolutionary stuff, which we'll get to in the in the next few years shortly, but what do you reckon the key is, Pops? I think the key is don't open your mouth unless you know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, and I think good for, advice. For my, for my side of things, um, I'm kind of like the analyst, right? The analyst is the guy that's played the, the – or played the game at a high level so he can identify stuff that's about to happen before it actually does. And there's a lot of times when I see someone in the lineup and I'm going, well, if that was me, this is what I would be doing. And and on the occasion, it's on cue, Mick or Joel or someone listens to me and they do it but because you just know how they play the game. And I think knowledge of it is, is, is super important, you know. And I don't try and pretend to, to, to know everything. Uh, and if I don't, I'll keep my mouth shut. But, you know... What I do know is how to put a heat together and I kind of know what's going to happen next because you've been there and done it so many times. I mean, talk about leaving it to the last second and racing down the line. An average surfer would not have got around that section, but Toledo comes around and then there's the first turn. Second manoeuvre, just a big wrapping cutty. What was the transition like? Because I used to watch the webcasts and someone that worked in sports broadcasting I used to think to myself, well, it's time for this to go to the next level because sports broadcasting was. And yep. then the WSL came along and all of a sudden there was more cameras. It was a TV show. There was preview. There was post. There was uh, there was critical analysis of what was being seen to the point now where it's become a really, really tight sports broadcast. But yep. it was a massive change for the sport. What, what was it like introducing that to the sport, which... Re- 
for, for a sport that's full of rebels, it's quite resistant to change <laughs> surfing, isn't it? It is, it is. Um, you know, because you look at it, there's the sport side of it and then there's the lifestyle side of it. And there's more people surf for the love of it than actually compete. So, you know, people will go, well, look, it's a sport that shouldn't be judged and it's hard to compete in it because everyone's different. It's like art, right? You look at a piece of art, someone's going to love that and the other person's going to go, that's crap. You know, it's the same with surfing. Everyone loves, you know, someone's style. Everyone rides waves differently. Everyone rides different boards. So for me, to, to the, the whole broadcast thing, though, um, what changed significantly was roles. No, we didn't, never really had roles. Mm. So when I worked with Quicksilver and I had Peter Mell in the booth, for example, I would kind of do play-by-play and then a bit of colour as well, but Pete would kind of be the colour guy. So I'd, I'd tee him up. And then I'd be the, you know, welcome back, you know, going to an ad, we're back soon, all that kind of stuff. So that was the beginning of my commentary career was the play-by-play guy. Once we got put in roles and my role became the analyst, so then it's like, well, oh, this is easy now. I just get to talk about what I know. Joe, Joe does all the hard stuff and I wait for there's something relevant for me to talk about. You know, something happens here or there that someone might have missed and, and that's when I jump in. So it actually took a lot of pressure off me because now I've only got to talk about the surfing and not all that other stuff that I've got to remember. I love it when you get introduced all the time, isn't it? Now it's time to speak to the 1989 <laughs> world champion, Martin Potter. So w- there's a lot of people that follow us and, and every time Joe says that, they have to have to do a skull. <laughs> it's good. So it's good. You, you figure it's out good. the amount of times he says that in one heat, right? That's a lot. <laughs> hey, of, of everything you've broadcast, you are in a unique position because you were in the booth and uh, I've been blessed to have him on this podcast when Mick Fanning was oh at Jay Bay yep. and all of a sudden that shark appeared. Now, as much training pots or practice or experience you can have in a broadcasting situation, there's nothing to prepare you for one of the athletes to be attacked by a shark. And I look back at it this morning and it was actually really well directed because – if you're at a motor racing event and there's a crash, the director knows to go to a wide shot immediately in yeah. case something has happened to the athlete. Yeah. I don't know who directs the WSL, but immediately you went to the wide shot, which was really, really good TV production because who knows what was happening at the time. Take me into the booth. Mate, um, it was kind of surreal. You know, I thought um, I was about to watch my friend get eaten by a wild animal. You know, it was... Uh, and I, I ended up sort of swearing through that as well. I think I said, oh, shit, or something, and then I'm, oh, sorry, because I forgot where I was. As we look at Fanning on the rankings, oh, you can see a little splash. Oh. Holy shit. Excuse me. Um, and it was terrifying, um, Howie. It was, it was absolutely terrifying. I mean, we had a bird's eye view because we were, we were at the top level of the tower, so we could see it all going down. Um, and when it knocked him off and he swam away and then realised, hang on a sec, if, if I swim away, it's going to chase me. So he turned around to face it. And, and that was like the, one of the most bravest things I, th- I think I've ever seen anyone do. Uh, and then not to mention Julian paddling up to try and get involved as well. But it, it was, it was uh, a horrifying moment that we had to kind of control that. My, I had to control my emotions. Joe was fine. Joe's like... Straight ahead Joe, you know. Fanning needing some assistance. He's swimming into the beach. As we sound the horn to stop the final. Fanning still swimming on his own right. 
to the assistance of the jet skis. He'll hop on the sled and reset. But I, I kind of thought I was going to see bits missing off Mick, you know, and that was uh, something that you, you, you kind of not really prepared for. Um, you know, obviously one of those incredible moments that, that at the end of it, he got back up on the jet ski and everything was there. And we all then had a bit of a sigh of relief, but there's that, that 10 or 15, 20 seconds of, of just, oh my God, what, what what's going to happen to Mick, you know? And it, it's still kind of, every time I watch it, it gives me the, like, the heaviest goose, goosebumps, you know? Fanny with a thumbs up, he is okay. Rushing to the water safety. His leash chewed off as he shakes this one off. And the water safety on hand as Mick catches his breath. Um, I, I just think that it wasn't his day that day. Huh? I mean, uh, the shark definitely wanted to have a piece of him, but just couldn't work out how to do it. In a perverse sort of way, again, it's like motorsport, you know, you see a crash and the audience numbers increase. That's just yeah. what happens. Yeah. All of a sudden Mick was on, you know, big-time American talk shows and, and the sport was thrust into the spotlight and the audience will have grown as a result of that because people start watching it and then enjoy it and stay with it. So it was a, a horrifying but in some ways probably seminal moment yeah. for the way the sport was broadcast. You oh, see absolutely. it that way? Absolutely. I mean, Mick, Mick um, Kelly was by far the most, you know, infamous surfer in the world, but Mick, I think Mick took over that role. <laughs> Yeah. I don't think Kelly liked that too much. I was just sitting there. I was just about to, like, just start moving. And then I felt something grab, like, got stuck in my leg rope. And I, like, instantly just just jumped, like, away. And then it just kept coming at my board. And I just was, like, kicking and screaming. And, wow. <laughs> see some teeth? You get some teeth? I just saw fins. I didn't see the teeth. I was, I was waiting for the teeth to come at me. I was swimming. I was like, ah! Did you get a couple punches in? I punched it in the back, yeah. Um, you know, that, okay, we've got to watch the sport where someone could potentially be eaten by a wild animal. That, that's, you're not telling me people are going to tune in to watch that. Of course they are. It's like, exactly. a soccer, it's like a soccer match where the guy runs down the sideline and a lion jumps out and attacks him. <laughs> yes. You know, it, it's pretty much that equivalent, right? So to have that, um, that going for it, I mean, but that's something, like, we don't even think about, you know. We don't even have that second thought. Like, I surfed. The next morning after the event, I paddled out there and surfed. Um, and I, I Did mean, you not think about it at all? It's in the back of your mind, but you forget about it as soon as you're up and riding, you know. And, and put it this way, I've been in the water that much. If it was going to happen, it's going to happen, you know. It's, there's nothing you can do about it. It's like you don't stop race car driving because you go too fast. Or, you know, it's, there's those things that you, it's just a constant in the sport where you go, that's part of it. And and to, to share the ocean with sharks, um I think it's more dangerous getting in the car and driving down the street. Yes. You get more chance of getting hurt doing that. The chances of getting bitten by a shark, it's almost like the, the lotto in reverse. You know what I mean? You've got to be that unlucky to, to get bitten by a shark. It's, it's crazy. I mean, I've seen them. I've been chased out of the water a few times. Um, I've seen them at J-Bay. I saw mixed shark at J-Bay last year. The exact same shark comes through there every, every year at that time. Huh. Um, and he swims over to WA and he comes back every year. They do this massive um, t uh, massive route. But it's just part of the game, especially at a place like Jeffreys Bay. Um, there's, there's other places that we travel to where it's very sharky as well, but you've, um, you kind of put it in the back of your mind and, and try not think about it. And I think that's the only way to deal with it. You've been, you've been so good with your time. I want to ask you about a few of the competitors you commentate on at the moment. But first... Um 
long-time listeners to this show will know I've got a couple of kids that yep. I always tell about the guest and then they ask a question. Um, now, I was watching... Uh, I was watching Strange Desires with my eight-year-old this morning and he's like, Dad, who is this bloke? Um, and now that you know what he's watched, his name is Mac but he operates, his self-proclaimed nickname is the Big Penguin. So hopefully you can hear this, Potts. You'll understand where this question's come from after he's seen Strange Desires this morning over breakfast but here is his question for you. Hi, Potts, Big Penguin When I watched you surfing, you had super long hair. I've got long hair as well, but I've got one slight problem. You're only allowed to have hair down to your shoulders in my school. So what should I say to my principal when he tells me to get it cut? Oh, what a great question, Big Penguin. I used to go to a school in South Africa where it was mandatory to have short hair. Your hair, your hair was not allowed to touch your ears. It was not allowed to touch your collar. Okay. Right? And so if, if it was touching your ears or touching your collar you'd get a whack on the backside, right? Do you think I got my hair cut? <laughs> no, I just took a whack on the backside every single day, <laughs> right? So stick with your hair, mate. Don't let them tell you what, how long your hair can be. As long as it's neat and tidy and it's washed and it's all good. He will enjoy that. And I don't think these days he's going to get a whack on his bum either. So I don't think <laughs> the ramifications would be quite as bad. Hey, you see the best up close... Um, what type of character is Kelly Slater? Kelly Slater knows this wave as good as anyone. As he drives through that section, this, the wave unloads and then Kelly comes out afterwards. So about as deep as you could possibly get on that wave. Wow. It's, you know what? He's, he's one of the most competitive humans I've ever met. Um, and I think sometimes that kind of gets in the way of who he is. Um, you know, I've travelled the world with him. I've watched him grow up as a kid. Um, I've stayed with him in the Mentawi Islands in the same room and he would, uh, me and Shane Dorian would go to bed at 8 o'clock and we'd get up at 6 o'clock and he would go to bed at 6 o'clock. He'd been up all night. He's a vampire. Um, really? He gets up, he, he'd go to bed at 6 o'clock, we'd go down for breakfast, come back at 8, he'd get up at 8. So sleep two hours a night and huh. surf all day with us. I mean, he's... He's a unique human. Uh, he's competitive. If there's something he doesn't know about, by the end of the day, he'll know more about it than you. Um, he's generous. He's, you know, there's, there's a different side to Kelly. You know, you get him outside of that arena and you get him on the golf course where I spent a lot of time with him. And, you know, even that's like um, a different side of Kelly. You know, he kind of lets his guard down a little bit. He's funny. He's knowledgeable. I mean, he's a walking encyclopedia, that guy. Um he loves surfing and, you know, he's, um, I think the hardest thing is, is for him to drop his guard and I think that's why no one really knows him, you know, because of everyone wants a piece of him, you know. You, you travel the world and it's Kelly, 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 Kelly and then you can understand where he kind of may seem a little bit um, egotistical at, at times or whatever but um, he just, you know, it's hard for him to spread his time around for everyone and they still have some for him, left for himself but that's the price of fame, right? So you've got to be able to handle all that stuff. But, you know, he's a good bloke. I think he's uh, one of the, the worthiest world champions we've had. And, you know, when we were, when he came on tour, I, talk, I remember talking to Tom and we said, this guy's worthy, right? And so we, we kind of took him under our wing and showed him everything we knew. Every trick in the book I had, I played on him so he knew it. Hmm. You know, every hassle move I put on him so he knew it. And so he took all that forward. And 
became uh, invincible, you know, not just from me, but Tom as well. When you, oh, I'm sure if it's the certain teams I love commentating in footy or, you know, when when I'm lucky enough to be commentating a test match that India's playing in and Virat Kohli comes out to bat, I, I know it's going to be a great day. Like I get a real buzz out of that. Yeah. Who are the surfers when they paddle out in a heat that you get excited about? Idlo knows he doesn't have to be on the good ones. Why? Because he's got this game. Big air reverse there, lands clean, comes around and does a nice little vertical turn to finish off this wave. Um, I like uh, Italo Ferreira, uh, yeah. the, the new world champion, is um, is probably one of the most exciting guys to watch. Um, Felipe Toledo, he's another guy that um, we haven't seen the best of him yet. I think he's got world championship written all over him. Um, Jordy Smith, I like watching uh, the big South African. You know, he... He's got that air game, but he's got the turns that, that a lot of the guys don't have. Um, power. You know, he can, he can drop a 10-point right at J-Bay purely on manoeuvres, you know, nothing above the lip. And then he's still got that game as well. So, um, you know, back in the day, I used to love watching Joel and Mick before they retired. I think those were, you know, just, um, just, just true professionals of every sense of the word, you know. And it's a pleasure watching guys like that. And again, if I go to work and it's a test match, I know that I'll start at this time and I'll finish at that time. How do you deal with the days on the <laughs> ASP and the travel? Because those, again, that don't listen to the show might not understand professional surfing. Like you get there and it can be called on, it can be called off, it can be called on delay. Yeah. You might be there at 6 in the morning. It might still be going at 7 at night. There's some brutal days there, Pops. Massive days, yeah. Europe, Europe's generally um, nails us. Um you know, other places that have restrictions on time when you can start, when you can stop. And in Europe, there's no regulation. So, you know, we can start at first light, which, as you said, would be 7, 7.30. And then it runs till 8, o'clock, eight or 9 o'clock at night, you know. And um, it's massive days. You know? And I think um, we, had, we, had, we only had limited people doing it as well. I think six commentators per event. Not so many. You, so you've got two teams in the booth and then you've got a couple roving around. So everyone's working full on, you know. And I think that... The, the hard part is is listening to the critiques and the like the criticism after that. I think um, social media is hell when it comes to that. You know, you've worked a long day, you've, you've busted your ass and, and people have been listening to you all day. Some people love it, some people don't. You know, and I think I told Peter Mel one day, we worked all day and I said, whatever you do, don't go and read all the comments because people leave. And he came yes. back the next day and his head was down. I said, you read the comments, didn't you? And he's like, yep. And I said, well, I told you not to. And there's a lot of negative people out there, but what they've got to understand is, you understand that they might not, is that you've got to be switched on for that long. And, and so you're going to make a stuff up sooner or later. You're going to say something wrong sooner or later. It's just the human nature. You can't be live and make no mistakes for 12, 13 hours a day. Shit's going to happen. You know, and I think that's where the WSL are thinking now, maybe bigger teams, so we've got more people to spread them out, so we do less events a year, but... And that way we come in with fresh airs instead of, you know, getting beaten up all year and then by the end of the year you're just completely worn out. Do you rail against the world in which we live? This is a pretty deep question where 99% of what you can do is right and 1% is wrong yet. I don't know if it's specifically Australia. I think it's becoming a problem in Australia, but we focus on the 1%. Yeah, I, I think Australia's um, very guilty of that. Um, to yeah, be, so do to, I. To be honest with you, I think maybe leading the pack. Um, you know, South America, you know, there's places we go to where they're a lot more forgiving. They don't give a sh- 
they're just stoked that, that, that it's happening and we're there and they're loving it. And, you know, I think, um, I think people that have been around the sport, like, like Australia, it's, it's been a massive sport in Australia for, for a lot longer than most places. So I think it's just the fact that maybe they're just bored of it. I don't know. Maybe just people just don't get it, you know, and, and I don't really care. You know, I go out and I do my best because the surfers that are riding those waves deserve that and, and I'll give it 110%. And, um, you know, this, this, I'm going to have people that like what I say that I'm going to have people that don't like what I say. And I'm going to focus more on the people that, that like what I say and forget about the ones that don't because you can't control that stuff, you know, that stuff that, that you and I have to deal with doing what we do. Um, there's haters and unfortunately there's a platform now, social media, where people um, can be uh, faceless and, and, and say stuff that, that they wouldn't say to your face. You know, I guarantee there's people that write me off in the media, but then if I saw them, they'd be like, hey, mate, how you going? Good job, blah, 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 you know. And that's, that's given these people that platform to do that, which, which kind of is, is, is a little scary. What's the next progression? You, you've been involved in progressing surfing, I guess, in recent times. I remember the first time I saw Kelly's wave pool, the ranch, and I was like, oh, my God, how, how can this actually be? And now I'm <laughs> yeah. sure you've been to Urban Surf in Melbourne, which yeah. is just a mind blow. What do you think the next progression in competitive surfing is? I think the, I think it's criteria. I think we need to change. I mean, they want to get the – like last year, the way the year finished last year where we had number one and number two in the final – at yes. the last event, that they somehow have to have that happen every single time. You you want the, you want the world title to come down to the last heat of the last event on the last day. Well, and that's what they're instigating, isn't it? That's the, what they're the trying new, to instigate. The but, but whether that's going to happen or not, I mean, then you look at the fact of okay, this guy's John John, for example, has led all year. All right, he's won everything. He's number one in the world. He gets to Hawaii. He hurts his knee. He get, comes up against number five. Gets beaten. So he's maintained his number one spot all year and then loses it right at the end. That kind of seems a little not fair, if you know what I'm saying. So there's, they've obviously got to tweak it. How, how they're going to tweak it, I'm not sure, but I like the fact of seeing number one and two go for it to win the world title. Well, at the end of the day, and I don't think a lot of people realise this, I'd be interested in to see what you think of it. Like, I go to work, I think I'm working in the entertainment business because I can choose to watch the ASP the WSL and listen to you or I can watch Netflix or Amazon or Foxtel or like ostensibly you're in the entertainment business yeah. and that will increase the level of entertainment because the, the world title race last year coming down to the last heat was, oh, was, was mind-blowing, yeah. mind-blowing. I think it was one of the big, the, the I think we had the largest audi- audience I think um, out of any of all year. So, you know, number one is Pipeline, it's the Gladiator Pit, it's, it's a wave of consequence. And then you've got two of the best surfers in the world, number one and two, punching it out for it, you know. You want to win the world title, you've got to beat the world's best, you know. You've got to beat the guy to, to win it, you know. You go in the boxing more- room to, to, to fight Mike Tyson, you've got to knock Mike Tyson out to get the world championship. Yeah, that's it. And, and that's how it should be, you know. I want to see two beasts getting in the ring and going at it. Like, let's bring it on. Let's bring a little bit of argy-bargy back maybe. Let's, you know, these guys are getting too soft. They're too spoiled. Maybe a couple of punch-ups on the beach. Hot <laughs> stuff. <laughs> Not necessarily punch-ups, but I want to see like I want to see these guys fight for it. You know. Yeah. Fight for it. Who wants it the most? Let's see what you got. Well, that was the that was the Irons Slater rivalry, wasn't it? That yeah. was that was unmissable. Anyway, I'm getting I'm getting sidetracked. I've got two more questions for you. No worries. Uh, well, one's from me, one's from my daughter. Now okay. you've had the big penguin. Yep. Now you get the pickle. My daughter Sky, <laughs> who is. Ken, who loves to surf, um, and this is what she's got for you. Hi, Pots, Pickle here. I love 
surfing. My two favourite places to surf are Boings, which is along 13th Beach, where I live, and also a place called Plagiones in Costa Rica, because the water's warm. Where are your favourite spots to surf in the whole world? Well, now, before you answer that, yep. but I just wish I was 10 and oh. had the opportunity to surf in Costa Rica. But oh, anyway, my God, that's, absolutely, that's, right? That's a story for another day. I didn't even know what surfing was until I was 10. <laughs> 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 All right, Pickle. Um, actually, you know what? I love 13th Beach too. I actually enjoy it. It's very similar to my backyard here at St. Andrews Beach, which is my favourite place because right. I can walk over the sand dunes um, and I know I'm close to home. But uh, my other favourite place would have to be Jeffrey's Bay. I think Jeffrey's Bay, um, it's, it's, it's one of the seven wonders of the world. It's one of the longest waves you'll ever get. And it's a wave that every other point break in the world is measured against. It's a yardstick. It's it's sets the bar for every other point break, um, whether it's three foot or whether it's ten foot. It's absolutely perfect. Um, it's challenging. It's exciting, and it's a way that I I think I first surfed when I was about twelve years old. So, it's got a very special place in my heart. I'm going to digress for a moment. I, I never I, I resist talking about myself in this podcast as about the guests, but I went there years ago. Pots pre-internet surf reports and it was flat, flat, flat. And the locals kept saying, stay for five days. On the fifth day, there will be waves. I'm a terrible surfer. Um, and on the fifth day, it was three foot and absolute perfection. Like it Perfect. could not have been better. And I was out there and it gets pretty crowded and the surfers were all way better than me. And for whatever reason, after three hours, finally the perfect wave came through. It was and there was no one else out. They must have all got a set. I was in the right spot, stood up, went to do my first turn. I could see down the line and I fell off oh, and I never got another no. opportunity there and I absolutely stuffed it. Oh, yeah. And it's still with me. Like yeah. you were talking about taking off a pipe yeah. and making it. I took off a J-Bay and stuffed it and so, still sits with me now. So you've got to go back. I do. You've got to go back and finish off that, finish off that wave, mate. I do. Yeah. I do. All right, last question for you. I always finish like this. We're blessed to have um, a lot of kids listen to this show with, with their parents. Um, and, and I think you've got so many valuable lessons that you've imparted in the podcast. But for the kids listening that want to achieve something in their desired field in life, what advice would you give them? Hard work beats talent that doesn't work hard. So if you want something, you've got to go out there and work your butt off for it. You know, you've got to put 110% into it. You've got to live and breathe it. Because the guys that you're going to compete against are the guys that are on the other side of the fence are doing that. You've got to do more. You've got to be able to walk down at, uh, at the end of the day and stand there and look across at your opponent and say, I deserve this because I've worked really hard for it and you're not taking it away from me. So if you want something, going, you've got to take, a, take the bull by the horns, work your butt off, and it'll come. Great advice. Um, I was excited about the opportunity to have a chat with you and thanks to Tommy Bennett from the WSL um, for sorting it out, but it's lived up to every expectation I could have had, mate. Um, Thanks, Howie. I I love listening to you in commentary, so I I know we spoke right at the start about what will happen out of this strange world, about how much you'll be doing and and the travel requirement, but it's been a thrill to have a chat with you, mate, and hopefully I can keep listening to you in commentary because it's it's almost like a a background of my life, so I absolutely love it. Thank you very much, Howie. It's been a pleasure, mate, and, um, yeah, keep up the good work too. Cheers. Stay safe, brother. Cheers, brother.
so, so many parts to Martin's story. Thanks to Potts for coming on and being such an interesting guest. If you see him out in the surf, where he still absolutely rips, by the way, tell him you listen to him on the show. That'd be cool. Remember, the next show will drop on Thursday, July 16. Until then, peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try If we try, try, try Listener